What's up, Euphonauts? I have a special guest with me today. He is a noted anomalous researcher and lecturer on all things weird. He's a writer, podcaster, musician, and probably the weirdest guy you'll ever know, John E.L. Tenney. John, welcome to the Our Strange Skies podcast. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Honored to have you. Absolutely. Um, so there are uh, public figures that closely associate themselves with colors or words. Uh, for instance, Prince is most associated with the color purple, and Johnny Cash was the man <laughs> in black. You most closely associate yourself with the word weird. So what does the word weird mean to you, and how did you come to associate yourself with it? I've been on uh, – it's a great question. I've been on a campaign for almost 30 years to kind of reclaim the word weird. And I guess my love affair with it started as a kind of realization of who I was. I, I used to get beat up a lot in school because I was a weirdo. And there came a point, I think probably around freshman year of high school, when I realized that I would be called a weirdo and then I would get beat up. And at some point I realized like, oh, so a weirdo is a person who doesn't beat other people up. Like that was the beginning formation of like, oh, a weirdo must be since I'm getting beat up and I'm not beating other people up. What it, what is it about me that makes people want to beat me up? And then I looked at myself and I was like, okay, so I think about different things that people no, don't normally think about. I'm compassionate. I'm kind. I'm caring. That must be what a weirdo is. And so like where at once it was hurled at me as an insult, I started hearing it whenever it was said as a compliment, like, we're going to beat you up because you care too much about things. You don't think like me. And that was all good. And so whenever I use that word weirdo, it's like the most deep compliment I can give to someone. Absolutely. And it's a, it's like um, uh, in the last, I don't know, maybe like 10 years, we've started to see uh, at least the, the word geek kind of come back and like, I usually make the joke that the geeks have inherited the earth because like geek culture is like in. So do you think that weird <laughs> is starting to get to that level? It is. And, you know, there's a part of geek culture or nerd culture and weirdo, uh, you know, th it, there's a crossover, right? Because I grew up as a comic book kid and a Star Wars kid. Uh, you know, I was the perfect age. Like when Star Wars, the first Star Wars came out, I was seven. Like it was perfect for I was, I was just ripe for it. And I talk to my friends who are my age now and I say like, we live in a world now where we won, where the nerds and the weirdos won. Every major motion picture is a comic book movie or a crazy horror film or a giant monster movie. Like we're in charge now and, and we've made this crazy world and it's completely accepted. And people are like, yes, let's, you know, where I used to go to a comic book convention in the late seventies, early eighties. There were a hundred people there and 50 of them were guest authors and illustrators, you know, now you go to, you can't even go to San Diego anymore because the tickets sell out a year in advance and there's a hundred thousand people there. So we won. <laughs> we will celebrate and we will celebrate often. <laughs> <laughs> so when it comes to people who uh, research and investigate things like the paranormal UFOs and et cetera, they usually have some kind of personal experience that they can't explain that kind of pushes them to try to find answers and uh, just trying to learn as, uh, as much as they can about that. 
what pushed you into investigating anomalous phenomena? Uh you know, there's a like you said, there's a lot of people who have these childhood experiences where they'll tell you, you know, they saw a ghost when they were five or six and or they got abducted when they were six or seven years old by aliens. And um, I don't really have a story like that. I was a punk rock kid growing up in Detroit. I loved reading about weird stuff. I loved reading about UFOs and ghosts and Bigfoot and all strange phenomena, all manner of it. And it just became kind of this driving motivation for me that there was this whole aspect of our world, which, you know, proper science, quote unquote, like accepted science just thought silly that anybody would even ruminate and speculate about. And that as a punk rock kid kind of made me mad. I was like, well, why is nobody seriously looking at this? And then when I was 16, I met a professor who specialized in political assassinations of the 1960s and 70s. And I became his gopher kind of writing Freedom of Information Act requests and learning how to deal with the government on the phone and in person. And it was this other aspect of here's this these huge historical moments, the assassinations of RFK, JFK, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, the Black Panther Party members that were assassinated, Kent State University, these huge historical moments that for some reason accepted historians would look at the hypotheses behind alternate versions of events as nonsensical and silly. Like, of, of course, you know, you talk to a historian, it was only Lee Harvey Oswald who ever shot. There was never any conspiracy. People are just nuts. But when that's being said by someone who didn't study it, like, it's the same thing that happens with ghosts or UFOs. You, you'll get scientists claiming, you know, none of this stuff is real. It's all aberrations in people's minds and memories and imaginations. And yet, they have never studied it. And science was not, science isn't a dogma. It's not a religion. You don't just believe what the high elders give you. And science has really kind of turned into that. And that motivated me to like, okay, keep pressing historic like ideas of what history is. History is very fluid. As we gain more information, our history changes. We know that. And so don't just look at what's told to you by a history professor in a history book. Like look on the outlying edges, see how it's going to change. Um, so that's really where I got started. And then when I was 18, I had a heart attack and had a, a near death experience. And so when I kind of recovered from that, I was already doing, you know, previous to that, I was already doing these, uh, conspiracy lectures. And so then I started delving into my experience, what happened to me biologically, neurobiologically, what was the, whether the psychology behind near-death experiences. And so then I started giving lectures, not only on conspiracy theories, but on government programs that studied consciousness or the mind or altered the mind, things like MK Ultra. So they got, my lectures ended up getting wider and weirder. And then once I realized that, you know, there are people who worked for the government that were experimenting with remote viewing and MK Ultra, but they were also involved with UFOs. Then my lectures got even more diverse and weird, and all of a sudden I was doing what I call now, you know, my website is weirdlectures.com. There's just no better way to do it because I'm going to talk about ghosts and UFOs and time travel and Bigfoot and monsters and all all and anything that's weird. Now, see, that's interesting because, yeah, you don't often find people who – like everybody has an experience. I've had numerous experiences over my life, so it's kind of refreshing to see that kind of take on it. Even if even if it does also lead to a near-death experience, which I 
near death. I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. So like, yeah. Um, so, but I mean, I think that's, I think it's, I think what you're saying, like it's, you know, we all come at this from our different vantage points for me, you know, now that I've been doing this for 30 years, I've had a ton of strange experiences that involve all manner of high strangeness, whether it be seeing UFOs or having missing time or having, uh, you know, experience poltergeist phenomena or sitting in on an exorcism. Like I've now that I've been immersed in this world, I've had all manner of strange experiences. And I really do feel like, you know, once you give yourself over to, okay, now I'm going to exist in this bizarre world, you do become a much richer person with experience. And, and that really helps you understand that you're not the best observer to phenomena. So like my near-death experience is very personal to me. I don't talk about it very deeply. I mean, I discuss it, but I don't get really deep into it because I also know I'm the worst observer of that experience. Like even though it happened to me, I, my judgment and mind is so clouded by the events surrounding it that I know that I'm not experiencing it in a true, proper, unbiased fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... I, I recently learned, like in the in the last few months, because I had no idea that uh, was it your first job was with Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, that was my first professional okay. weird research job. Yeah. Okay. Um, what did you you did research? How long were you uh, there, and uh, what what did you, what kinds of research did you do? So I was actually at the time I had already been giving lectures, uh, probably by that time about three years. And I had assisted my mentor a couple of years before that, but I was going to Wayne State University. I thought I would be a history teacher uh, specializing in folklore. And I got a call from a, a friend of mine who was a researcher on Unsolved. And he said, you know, we need another person to pick up some slack. We're getting into these weirder episodes because originally Unsolved was mostly murder mysteries and unsolved kidnapping cases. Mm -hmm. And as that show evolved, you know, eventually at that time with no internet and you know, uh, you, you ran, you literally ran out of cases that of unsolved murders. And so they started turning to the paranormal and the supernatural and discussing things like Lizzie Borden or the Gulf breeze, UFO sightings, things like that. And so a friend of mine contacted me and said, do you want to pick up some of the slack on some of this research that we have? That is really weird. They knew that I, that's what I was into. And so I spent probably, I think two years, uh, doing research uh, and kind of reconnaissance for Unsolved. That's pretty. That's that's uh, honestly really awesome because uh, Robert Stack, um, I think, haunted my dreams for a certain par portion of my childhood. He, he was just <laughs> he had an air about himself. The way he projected himself on that show, uh, it just scared the bejesus out of me. Um, what? What was he like? And I mean, I've asked you this question on Twitter before, but like, what kind of person was Robert Stack like? Because like, it, it, like yeah, I have I this mean, mythology in my head about the man, and uh, I don't know. I probably won't go anywhere. <laughs> no, your mythology about him is is right, but it's you're you're the mythology that people have about Robert Stack is like at a four. And he was always at like a 10. I mean, he was old school golden age of Hollywood. So mm -hmm. when he walked anywhere, like he commanded this presence. But at the same time, like in old Hollywood, you everybody was drunk all the time. 
Mm-hmm. And so, like, there's a lot of times if you listen to the voiceovers in episodes of Unsolved Mysteries where you can hear him kind of struggling to get through the the, the voiceovers <laughs> yeah, because yeah. he's been drinking. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, he was, you know, classic Hollywood. Uh, he knew that he had been around for a long time. He knew that people loved him. And there was one time I had a discussion with him because I had been working and researching for them and – my thing was like, does Robert Stack believe in anything that he's saying? <laughs> and so I, I had a chance one time where I asked my, I pretty much just put it like that. I was like, um, you know, Mr. Stack, as when you're talking about all this stuff, UFOs and ghosts and psychics and murders, you know, unsolved murders, like, do you believe in any, do you have, have you ever had any supernatural experiences? And he was kind of coy about it, but he kind of, he lapsed into this story about a really good friend of his who had worked for the Navy and had recounted to Robert Stack how he uh, had seen while in the Navy um, UFOs flying around under the water, well, un, you know, unidentified submerged objects underneath the water, and they would burst through the water and out into the sky. And, and Robert Stack was like, you know, this guy doesn't have any reason to lie to me, so I believe what he told me. And then he launched into another story about how his wife had gone and seen a psychic when she first moved to California. And the psychic told her, um, you know, I, I don't really see very much in your future, but you're going to end up marrying someone who looks like Robert Stack. And she actually ended up marrying Robert Stack. So <laughs> when I, when we left that conversation, he was like, you know, so I don't doubt what my friend told me about UFOs. And I also don't doubt that the psychic was right. So I guess those are the types of things I believe. And he kind of just left it there. But he didn't go very, very deep into that type of stuff. Yeah, that's understandable. Um, that's just uh, – it. definitely the way that you painted him, it definitely seems like the kind of person that he just was, you know. At least uh, it, there was that closed-off portion to him. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, like I said, that's old-school Hollywood. I mean – who knows what the se- I mean, we're only now learning the secrets of old, old school Hollywood stars, you know, 50 years after they pass, we realize what they were doing and what was all the nonsense that was going on. So they were just very closed off in that way. Mm. So I got one question from, uh, I, I put out there, I was like, Hey, if anybody's got any questions, just throw them my way. I got sure. one question, one question. And it was from, and it's from, uh, Scott Philbrook of, uh, the astonishing legends podcast. He wants to know, just just from your perspective, how much did Unsolved Mysteries embellish any of the stories that they put out there, at least in your time there? Uh, they were good at not embellishing while I was there, but the reason that I left is because as, as it went on, as Unsolved went on, and you can see this in the shows, uh, they become more hyperbolic. And so when I, I actually left under really bad circumstances with Unsolved because... There, there was an episode they were working on and they didn't have a uh, professor at, to be a talking head in this one episode. They need, just needed a professor to say something about ghosts in this one episode. And so one of the showrunners came to me and said, you know, no one's ever seen you. You, you know, you're only behind the scenes. We're just going to put you on camera and give you a different name and you can just say this quote for us and we'll just put you on there. And I blew up because this is just complete fabrication. Like they need a line to be said by a professor. So now they're just going to put someone on and have them speak a line under a false name that they're going to make up. And I mean, still 
my integrity has always got me in a little bit of problems here and there, but I, I jokingly say that there is an office somewhere in the uh, NBC building that is still has a cloud of expletives and, and obscenities from when I, I screamed at this showrunner in this room. Like it, it went on for five or six minutes of me just berating this guy. And that was actually how I left. But they did good up into a point. I would say probably around 94, 95 is when it start when they started to kind of pander to uh, larger audiences by making everything a lot more quote unquote exciting. And that that's where they started to make stuff up. Yeah. Uh, you, you could definitely see that. I, I remember when I stopped, when I just started tuning out, I think it was like shortly after like maybe 1997 or 98 somewhere. Mm-hmm. There. But, yeah. uh, and, and that's and, the nature of television, right? Like yeah. that's the problem with any type of nowadays with paranormal reality shows is, you know, you're only seeing those moments which are kind of these jump scare startle moments because they don't think the audience wants to be smart. That's, I mean, that sounds really uh, bad, and it is, but there's no better way to couch it. I mean, I had a producer on a television show tell me one time that the reason the show wasn't going to be picked up is because me and the other person on the show seemed too smart. And this is, this is, I mean, this is their words. Exactly. I have, I'll remember this, this whole conversation pretty perfectly. Cause I was so taken aback that they were so blunt with me. The guy said, when you make a television show, that's reality based, people don't want to see someone smart on television because it makes them feel dumb. They want to see dumb people on television because it makes them feel smart. And that's interesting because like, there almost seems to be kind of a transformation, at least in a little bit, in some of the shows. And 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 one that I'll point to is uh, Kindred Spirits. I I love the hell out of that show. It's, yeah, it's, it's great. It's a great show, and it and it brings in a unique uh, aspect to this. Whereas on other networks, um, I'm not going to cast Aspersion specifically, but where people are running into rooms, yelling at ghosts, and um, making fools of themselves. So. Um, do you think that uh, now that we're at the start, do you think we're going to see more of more shows like Kindred Spirits, more of a different approach, maybe more of a human approach? Uh, I would hope so. The the difference is you have like I love Kindred Spirits too, and I and I think the reason that it comes across as such a decent show for that type of for for this type of genre is because. Adam and Amy on the show are actually in charge of making the show. Mm -hmm. So they don't have to answer to really anyone. Um, so you get to see what's really going on. So like in the instance of the show ghost stalkers that I was on, when we filmed mm -hmm. that show, it was me and Chad and Nick was in charge of it. But what I didn't know is just because, I didn't know, but you know, there's two production companies behind it. Those people are making calls. And so Chad and I would film these kind of really deep, weird episodes that very, had very little to do with ghosts actually. And then when we would see the final edits, I, I, I was like, what, I don't even know what this show is anymore. Like, cause they would cut, I mean, the whole overarching narrative of ghost stalkers, which is never even really talked about in any of the episodes is here's me, John Tenney, this guy who's done this for 25 years, and Chad Lindbergh, this guy who's never done this before, uh, but we both have a close connection to 
death because we've had these near-death experiences. What is it like when someone with a lot of experience investigates a place versus someone with no experience when they investigate a, get, investigate a place? And so when you watch the show, uh, Chad is obviously screaming and going crazy because he's never been locked in a prison before. Uh, but you don't see any of his growth as an investigator throughout the show. By the by, the time we got to our final episode, he wasn't screaming anymore. He wasn't running around and freaking out like he had grown to understand the situation. And that whole narrative is completely lost because someone in the editing bay was like, yeah, well, let's just show him screaming and, and running around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, at a certain point, there's got to be a... a, a the returns can't be great after a certain point with that. I mean, I would hope that absolutely that this is a, this is a shift because I, uh, for the last five years, I have watched, uh, people <laughs> running around in the woods yelling for Bigfoot. Uh, now the new trend is, uh, and I, and I, and I like Chad show, um, uh, his, his new show. But, uh, when Rob Lowe did it, because I was on a, podcast uh and we uh it was we had these episodes called the lowdown where we would go through uh the low files and like kind of just pick <laughs> it apart and and make fun of it because it's like well you're not taking it seriously what, what you want is for a and e to fund a trip for you and your boys to just go around uh the states and and pretend to look at yeah. you know stuff so I yeah think, abso- absolutely yeah and i and i really do hope that we get more objective uh, shows going forward and, and at least, uh, you know, people pushing a better narrative than, um, Oh, Hey, that's a demon right there. It's, it's right on you. It's, (laughs) it's possessing me right now. Yeah. I I feel like the problem is though, unless people can have control of the show in its entirety, the way Adam and Amy do, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like as people in our kind of very diverse community of, of weirdos, as we grow in integrity and and know what we know and we refuse to do shows that are hyperbolic in nature the the industry itself will just find whoever to mouth the words and be on the show so i have this fear that as people like you or me or any of your listeners like people who have some real vested interest in this when a, when a producer comes to them and says like, okay, we're going to do a show where you're going to get attacked by demons. Uh, as people turn that show down, they're going to just keep asking until they get someone who says, yeah, okay, I'll do that. And, and therefore kind of spin this cycle of new shows of investigators. And everybody's like, who is this person? And then why is this, why is this person being attacked by demons or being abducted by aliens in every single episode? And it's because that person has nothing to lose. Right. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, it definitely, it hasn't helped, uh, especially from the UFO research side that I do. Um, I've had to watch ancient aliens be the pinnacle show (laughs) For this, and and it's not even directly the extraterrestrial hypothesis. It's an offshoot that says, um, no, uh, we're just one giant cargo cult. We haven't done anything. It's the aliens that have given us everything. I'm like, can't we just take credit for uh, like the things we do? Can, yeah, would it hurt. <laughs> yeah, and and I want to jump back just for a moment for the mm-hmm. on the UFO side, like to show you how confused a show can. So we did an episode of Ghost Stalkers, Chad and I, and we were going to this place called, um, it was a, 
I'm pretty sure it was a hospital in Georgia. Mm-hmm. And we were driving there, and and in the course of the show, you, you film Chad and I having these conversations in the RV as we're driving to the hospital. And I was talking about the confluence of energies that might build up in a hospital since you have a ton of people dying in hospitals, but you also have a ton of people being born. And so does that somehow manipulate reality? Does that somehow tear a fabric in the the bond? between we were in this kind of deep conversation and I was talking about how it might be perhaps easier for energies to move using these kind of waves of information of people being lost and people coming into this reality by being born and as we're in the midst of this kind of deep conversation I see we're passing along by a, a huge like seven foot barbed wire fence and I, I tell Chad to stop because I saw a NASA logo. And so the cameras were running the whole time. We pulled down this road, which ends at like a military gate. And I get out and I'm looking around and I get on my phone and I realize that like a mile away from this hospital is one of the largest radio telescopes in the United States that's being used by SETI to look for extraterrestrials. And so I start talking about like, oh man, we were just talking about like, people being able to come into this reality and now there's this giant telescope and it's looking out into space and Chad and I have this great conversation about what is life and how does it get here and how do we recognize it and how do we know that we're talking to ghosts and we're not talking to time travelers and aliens and just this huge great conversation and you see none of it in the episode. That oh, See, now that's something I'd want to see, absolutely. And, Yeah, and it was so much like there's so much in that episode that you didn't need to see. You know, there was a lot of stumbling around in the dark, as is on a ghost show. You could have have taken out four minutes of stumbling around in the dark and had this really deep kind of uh, philosophical conversation about the nature of existence and – and the, the people who produced the show were just like, no, that's kind of boring. And you guys are talking about aliens. This is a ghost show. Like, mm-hmm. they really <laughs> didn't have any idea what was going on. Yeah. Um, and um, I do have to give one shout out here. Uh, because if it wasn't for this individual, I wouldn't even have any idea who you were. Um, and that <laughs> is uh, Carl Pfeiffer. Because I was tweeting him one day. And he sent me that uh, YouTube video of... Those ghost stalker outtakes, those are hilarious. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Those are pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, I have hours of them because that was the other thing too. Uh, after the first episode, we did the first episode, uh, you know, you shoot all the episodes kind of back to back and then they go to be edited and then you would get a rough edit of the show and they would want voiceovers. So you, you watch the rough edit and you, you do your voiceovers and So the first episode came out and was aired on television and they were doing this thing where they kept cutting to us talking about portals and to the degree of in one episode, an episode is 46 minutes long. There's one episode of ghost stalkers where in 46 minutes we say the word portal 51 times. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so I told Chad on the phone I was like, okay, listen, if this is what they're going to do, like we, we can't say that word at all when we're doing our voiceovers because they're going to cut to it and they're going to keep doing this. And I think what ended up happening is they ended up using 
clips from our previous voiceovers so that they could get the word portal back in. Because by the time we were doing the voiceovers for like the fourth, fifth and sixth episodes, Chad and I weren't saying it in our voiceovers anymore, but it was still showing up in the show. So I really think they were probably going back, like looking through our wave files. Where did they say portal? And then cutting that into our voiceover dialogue. But Oh, I have hours of me screaming into my microphone trying to do those voiceovers to pronounce words correctly. <laughs> it's frustrating, even on the podcasting side, because like um, my dad was uh, he was in radio for twenty years, and like that's that's my introduction into doing this. And I have this uh, uh, thing where I always try to nail everything in one take, and I can't do that. Oh yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I know exactly how it feels. Um, <laughs> Transitioning uh, from TV, um, have you ever had your own uh, UFO sighting? Uh, I have. So uh, the most recent one, I've had a few, but the most recent one was, I think, two years ago uh, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. I was driving to an event with a friend of mine. It was about 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was smoking, and I thought I saw the glow of my cigarette out his window. Uh, he, he was driving, I was sitting in the passenger seat and I thought maybe when my hand moved, I could see the ember from my cigarette in his window. And I looked at him and made a kind of curious face. And then he looked at me and said, did you just see a light? And I was like, yeah. And so we pulled over middle of nowhere. Uh, I mean, just nothing. We get out of his truck. We're standing in the darkness in, in rural Northern Michigan. And we're looking up at the sky and there's four or five really bright lights that are white, and then they slowly transition to a deep orange. And they're moving around in very anomalous ways, not the ways that planes should work. Uh, they were very high up, no noise, uh, making very sharp turns, you know, 90-degree turns, moving very quickly. And then, in my experience, this always happens, and it kind of freaks me out, Uh as we're watching it, these things which are off in the distance and we're watching them move around, one of them breaks away and flies directly, slowly over us. And it just looks like a bright orange ball. And I was like, oh, this, like, something knows we're looking at it. Like, it's coming here. And so, like, it flew directly over the top of us and then sped off to the north as fast as it could go. And Mike looked at me and was like, did that, did that just happen? I'm like, I, th I think so. And of course, we're checking our watches the whole time to make sure that we're not getting any missing time or anything like that. And then we just got back in his truck because what do you do at that point? Like, there's no one to call. You can't take – if you take a picture of it, it's just going to be a dot in the sky. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's just that type of experience. So that was the last one. The first one I ever got was – the first time I ever saw something that was strange was probably in the mid-90s. I was at – the job I was working at the time, which was a midnight shift in a heavily populated part of Michigan. I walked out back. It was about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, and I was looking at the moon. The sky was dark, except for the little bit of light pollution coming up from the city. And in the darkness of the sky, there was something darker than the sky moving, and it looked like a giant black triangle. And I didn't think anything about it whatsoever. I just looked at it, and my first thought was actually, that's a really strange bird. And then as it got closer to where I was at, I thought to myself, someone's flying a kite in the city. And then as it moved over the tops of the buildings, I thought to myself, holy crap, that was a UFO. Like, And 
to this day, every time I've seen something in a, I, I've seen about three times now, uh, anomalous things in the sky in a populated area. And it seems like when you're looking directly at it, UFOs are the last thing that you're thinking about. Absolutely. And I have firsthand experience with that because uh, three years ago, I was at work. Uh, a friend of mine had come to grab me to go outside for a break. And we uh, were just standing out there for a couple minutes. And then, for whatever reason, I just look up in the sky and there is this egg shaped object. And we're both looking at it. Uh, I had my phone on me. I didn't want to take a picture of it. And I've never been able to explain that to anybody. It's like, I don't know why I didn't. I don't know why. Like, I watched it, but I just didn't feel very interested in it. And, and my friend felt the same way. And uh, uh, echoing back to your, your last experience, I, I had a similar experience with an orange-colored uh, light in the sky uh, when I was 14 years old. And it actually, <laughs> there's a connection to uh, Unsolved Mysteries here because... Um, I basically, I was, I was getting ready for bed one night, and I see this uh, orange light uh, outside, and what it would do is it would turn on, and then it would turn off, and then it would, like, appear in another location. It would go in the side-to-side motion, turning on and off for about five minutes, to the point where I was just like, oh, that's cool, I'll just go to bed now. Like, why do we, why do we do these, why do we do these weird things? That's, that's one of the things about this phenomenon, which I, I don't understand. Uh, if, if these things are in the sky, why don't they want us to care about them? Yeah. And it's amazing to me because I've discussed this, like Carl, you were talking earlier about Carl Pfeiffer, like Carl and I have discussed this. I discussed it with my friends, Greg and Dana too, a number of researchers actually, but there does seem to be some type of mental block effect that's put on people who see UFOs. You're looking right at it, and you seem to not care about it. Like, it's just, oh, this is a thing I'm looking at in the sky. Um, I was on a break. I was working at a bookstore at the time. In the This was the later 90s, and I was sitting outside in the middle of the day in the downtown area where I live, and there's lunchtime, so there's just scads of people all over the street and I was sitting there smoking a cigarette and drinking a coffee and this tiny silver looking teardrop came down out of the out of the clouds out of the sky and it just hung kind of over the main street and I was I was transfixed on it and looking at it and I was looking around at all these people and no one seemed to notice it and so this woman was walking by me at the time and I kind of said excuse me miss and she's yeah and I said do you see that thing in the sky and she looked at me, didn't look at the sky, made a weird face, and then she just kept on walking. So I stood up and I walked down. I asked another person, do you see this thing? It probably was there for 30 to 40 seconds. And I had enough time to ask five or six people, like, will you look at that? And none of them would look at it. And that was making me really anxious. Like, why will no one turn around and look at this thing that's just hanging there in the sky? And I finally... It, it kind of zipped back up into the clouds and I could see maybe a block down the street. There was a girl standing on a corner, kind of slack jawed, just staring at the sky. And I ran down to her and I said, did you see that? And she said, yeah, what was it? And I said, I don't know, but nobody would look at it. And she told me, I asked four people to look at it and nobody would look at it. And I said, I asked five people to look at it and nobody would look at it. And then we just kind of stood there and looked at each other and then went back to work because again, what do you do? Yeah, there, there really is nothing you can do. It's just, 
you're like and what does it make uh, uh, what is it in certain people that they can notice this phenomena like yeah what is it about those people is it people that are open to it or um are they just people that whatever this thing is in the sky it's 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 picking and choosing who can see it like yeah i mean that's a great question and the you know i when i do lectures now one of the things that i talk about is people always ask me well why aren't you know, now that everybody has cameras and now that everybody has, you know, video camera on their phone, why don't we have way more photos and videos of UFOs? And the reality of the situation is because we have phones, no one walks around looking at the sky anymore. Right. We walk with our heads down looking at our phone, so basically staring at the ground the whole day. Um, which is why people, I mean, you know, when I go out, I try and put my phone in a pocket and then just walk with my hands in my pockets. Like I used to do back before I had a phone. And that way I'm aware of the neighborhood dog and the things in the sky and looking around, being involved in my environment and aside from being disattached and checking Facebook and Twitter all day long. Yeah. And that's, <sighs> and I have a friend, his name's Brian and he, he put uh, he put forth this uh, this hypothesis that the only reason that we don't have uh, good um, good photos and videos of them now is because it's uh, <laughs> it's made from the same technology that the UFOs are. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. One of the uh, one of the few predictions that I ever made that I I feel like it came true. I I don't often future predict, but back in the early '90s, I was doing a conspiracy lecture. And this woman uh, said, she raised her hand and she said, do you think that one day like we'll be microchipped and the government will know where we're at at all times? And very offhandedly, I said, no, they'll figure out a way to make us carry GPS trackers. Mm -hmm. And that's the closest I've ever come to having a prediction absolutely come true because now that's exactly what has happened. Yeah, because every app asks for your location now. Yep. That's it's so like there's a thousand things that know where you are at any one time, and all anybody needs to do is just tap into that system, and they and they have it. <laughs> yeah, there's no reason to microchip us. We did it willingly. Yeah. Oh, terrible. Just terrible. <laughs> um. So, as you mentioned before, you you started uh your journey with the Kennedy assassination. Um, and there have always been rumblings that part of the reason he was assassinated was because he had information about UFOs. And like, there are even people saying that uh, the reason uh, Marilyn Monroe died was that she knew this information too, and she was going to go public with it. Not saying we have confirmation or anything like that. Do you <laughs> think that he was killed for what he knew about UFOs? Or do you think it was a larger picture kind of scenario? Yeah, I don't think that that was the reason. I mean, he might have known something, and if he knew anything about UFOs, if him and Bobby knew anything, it wasn't because they were politically powerful. It was because they were a wealthy, powerful family in America, the Kennedys. Uh, I don't think the presidents are given all of our biggest secrets. I don't, you know, people always want to ask presidential candidates uh, or or even presidents themselves about UFOs. I don't think that you give the president that type of information because it's a person who's easily assassinated. It's a person who can go off script. It's a person that at most points is only in that position for four years, maybe eight at the most, and then they're gone back out into the general public. So I, I don't think he was killed for that. I think it was much wider and and deeper than that. I mean, at the lectures I would do about the Kennedy assassination, what I would point out is 
that Kennedy, by the time he was running for re-election in 63, he was already problematic because he was addicted to methamphetamines. So, you know, he, he was in constant chronic pain from a war wound to his back. And so he was being, you know, injected with methamphetamine probably two or three times a week. And so he was becoming dependent upon that. But as he was running for office, aside from him becoming problematic, you know, being kind of addicted to methamphetamine, uh, he started saying things like, if I'm elected, I'll smash the CIA like crystal and scatter their dust to the wind. Uh, the CIA obviously didn't like hearing that over and over again. And then he signed a Presidential National Security Act memorandum uh, about a month before he was shot that was bringing all the troops home from Vietnam by 1964. So he was effectively ending the Vietnam War in 1964. Uh, he signed that, and then a month later he shot. Lyndon Johnson's first order of business as president was to rescind that memorandum sign an, uh, a new presidential memorandum that sent 50,000 troops to Vietnam and escalated the war into the 70s. Yeah, and that's and that's interesting about the, the methamphetamine aspect because uh, I don't think a lot of people realize that uh, uh, when FDR was rolling up to do the uh, Day of Infamy speech after Pearl Harbor, he had just snorted cocaine the day before. Well, that... Not necessarily snorted, but right. like he was given cocaine, and he showed up in Al Capone's car to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the uh, people always laugh because there's this the Kennedy speech where he says, Ich bin ein Berliner, and he's trying to say, I'm a Berliner, but he accidentally mispronounces it and says, I am a donut. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's this kind of thing. But what people don't realize is the night before that speech, uh, if you look at, like, presidential logs and you look at the released information that we have, the night before that speech, the Secret Service chased Kennedy down in the hotel. He was naked, running through the hotel, freaking out because he had taken too much methamphetamine the, the night before that speech. So, I mean, that's where Kennedy was at at that point. You know, like, you have the President of the United States naked in a hotel, running around screaming. So that can be problematic when you're, when you're the President of the United States. Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> um, so um, in 2000, on, on a campaign stop in your hometown, uh, you asked George W. Bush, uh, while he was on the campaign trail, uh, some questions concerning, um, you know, Americans' rights to <laughs> UFO UFOs. files. Yeah. Um, can you just uh, uh, tell that story to our listeners? Because it's so fascinating. Sure. You know, the first thing, it's, it kind of harkens back to what I said. Like, the reason that I wanted to ask W about it isn't because I thought, you know, he's a politician, so he'll know anything about UFOs. Why? The reason I wanted to ask him specifically is because he came from a wealthy American family, the Bushes. You know, you have his dad was the former head of the CIA and a mm -hmm. vice president and a president. And, you know, he's part of this elite. And so if anybody would have known, like, and hopefully you know he's he's not the brightest bulb in the, in the in the room it's like maybe he would just slip up and say something as was you know what i wanted to know that his family talks about or had talked about in the past so i was running for mayor at the time of my hometown he had just announced his candidacy for president and so we were kind of given access because they want if if you both win they want to have a picture of you shaking the president's hand right so he was a little whistle stop tour in my hometown there were a ton of people there. I, I really didn't want to be in the mix with the crowd. 
there's actually a secondary story, which I think is pretty funny. That's not told in my regular things. And I'll give you that in a second. But mm-hmm. uh, I was talking to a CNN crew that was filming his whistle stop tour. And I said, you know, how's it going? How are you doing? And they said, oh, it's pretty boring. You know, it's pretty typical for a campaign stop. And I said, well, I'm going to ask them about UFOs. And they sparked up and they were like, great, this will be awesome. Something to film. So I waited for him to come out of the restaurant and the other mayoral candidates were lined up. And the first guy asked him about taxes and the next one asked him about uh, like child tax credits. And then he got to me and kind of gave me that wink, that George Bush like wink and nod. You got any questions for me? And I said, and I was like, yeah, I was like, if you're elected president, would you be willing to release any and all information that the government has regarding unidentified flying objects? And right as I was saying objects, I feel two hands on my shoulder. I'm pulled out of the crowd. Someone grabs him, turns him around, pushes him to a car. The car speeds off, and I'm thrown at the feet of the CNN crew I was just talking to. And this guy with a boom microphone from CNN looks down at me, and he goes, well, that was the wrong fucking question. <laughs> so I didn't get an answer, but it was a, a, a fun little uh, moment in my life where I got to actually speak to someone and, and pulled out by Secret Service. I think they were actually Texas uh, Texas Rangers, because he wouldn't have had Secret Service, I don't think, at that point. I think it was Texas Rangers who pulled me out of the crowd. Uh, but here's the secondary story, which I think is a lot funnier than the UFO story. Uh, so there was an author, his name was J.H. Hatfield, and, and he wrote a book called Fortunate Son. And this was before Bush announced he was going to run for president. And this unofficial biography of George W. Bush that he wrote talked about George W. Bush skipping out on his Air Force service and doing cocaine and Laura killing someone in a car accident. And so just all the scandals of the Bush family. And he had it published and St. Martin's Press sent copies to all of the major bookstores at the time, at the Waldens and Borders and Barnes and Noble. And they were told, keep these in the back room until Bush announces he's running for president. Then we'll put them out and we'll have a sellout and it'll be a bestseller. So I was dating a woman at the time who worked at a Borders. I told her this book is going to sell out, open up a box, take out two copies for me and put them on the shelf and I'll buy them. So she did that and... About a week after she did that, the Bush family sued St. Martin's Press over the book. So 76,000 copies of the book were recalled. Uh, because of the lawsuit, those 76,000 copies were burned. I think that out of the 76,000 they recalled, I think they got 74,000 back. There had been some lost and some people did what I did. Uh, but when I heard about this lawsuit, I ran to the bookstore. I bought the two copies that I had so that they wouldn't get returned. So now I have this book that was banned by the Bush family. Okay, now we jump ahead a month. Bush announces he's running for president and he's going to stop in Royal Oak and I'm going to have access to him. By that time, George W. had written his own biography called A Charge to Keep. So the night before he came to my hometown of Royal Oak, I went to a, I went to a bookstore. I bought his biography. I switched slip jackets with the book that his family had banned and burned. And when he showed up in Royal Oak, the first thing I did was I showed him what looked to be his biography, opened it up to the first blank page and said, can you autograph this for me? So he signed it. So sitting downstairs in my library right now is a a book that was banned and burned by the Bush family, autographed by George W. Bush. That is amazing. That is awesome. (laughs) Um, Why do you think you got such a violent reaction uh, for asking that question? Uh, I mean, the simplest answer is, quote-unquote, kooks. 
right? Mm-hmm. Like you want to keep the UFO guy away from the presidential candidate. Right. Uh, that's the simplest and probably probably most likely answer. Uh, also, you know, if you want to dig a little bit deeper, it's a question that they don't want him answering on question, uh, on camera. They don't want a recording of him talking about UFOs because if he is running for president, someone's going to use footage of him talking about UFOs in a campaign ad. So I don't think it's that there was a... Uh, some block put up so that he didn't talk about UFOs. I think it was more just let's keep track of our candidate. Let's make sure he doesn't look too insane. Yeah. And, uh, and we've come a long way, you know, from, uh, from that to Hillary Clinton going on uh, late, late night shows and talking about UFOs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Absolutely. But I mean, if you look at the fact of like, you know, Jimmy Carter, when he saw his UFO back in the in the 70s, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he filled out his UFO report. He saw a UFO. There was absolutely no doubt about it. And then by the time he becomes president, oh, I was mistaken. And the whole time he's a, a president, you know, he was mistaken that he didn't see a UFO. And then once he's not a president anymore, yeah, I was mistaken. It was a UFO. So we have come a very long way to where, you know, Obama or Clinton or someone can sit down with Jimmy Kimmel and just openly talk about wanting to know UFO secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, back in December, uh, it was revealed in the New York Times that uh, for five years, officially, quote unquote, um, that the government had a program to uh, investigate and assess the the threats that UFOs pose to the country, essentially. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard that news? Uh, I wasn't surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think most of us were. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's a very wonky world that we live in right now in in the realm of ufology, right? So. Mm-hmm. When that article came out, one of my first conversations that I had with another friend of mine who researches UFOs, I said to him, you know, before this story came out, where we stood as a UFO, the UFO community, where we stood was we knew that the government had had projects researching UFOs. We knew of government officials who believed in UFOs. We had blurry, grainy footage of UFOs from the government. After this story came out, we knew that the government had studied UFOs. We knew that officials believed in UFOs and we had blurry, grainy footage of UFOs. It got us absolutely nowhere. All it did was reignite, oh, stuff that we already knew. It didn't put us forward anywhere. It didn't give us anything more than we already had. Um, so I was really wondering about it because, you know, all this stuff had started with uh, to the to the Stars Academy and Tom DeLonge and you know, there's going to be disclosure movement. And whenever a disclosure movement starts, I get really kind of iffy about it because being in this community for 30 years, I've seen a number of disclosure movements begin. And so when I started looking at To the Stars and I started looking at that news article in the New York Times and how it was being covered, and then I started looking at the people involved in it, I was like, oh, these are all of the people from the 90s who screwed up ufology before. Mm-hmm. And they're back again. And because we have this really limited attention span, like people aren't even looking back into the early 90s or late 80s and realizing, oh, like half of the people that belong to Tom DeLong's To the Stars Academy all belong to this disinformation campaign in the 80s and 90s of, you know, kind of obfuscation and kind of fake disclosure. So it's really frustrating right now for me 
whenever I see people posting like, oh, this is this next thing that, you know, Hal put off is releasing about UFOs. And it's like, yeah, did you, did you see what he did in 87 when he released information about UFOs? Oh, he's been around that long. That's cool. It's like, yeah, no, but what he did in 87 was terrible. And so I, it's just really confounding to me and really frustrating to see this kind of same cast of players return to the scene. Yeah. And, uh, I don't think what uh, I, what I don't think a lot of people realize is that uh, in in terms of uh, Lieutenant David Fravor's story, that story's been out there since 2015, and yeah. and they basically kind of repackaged it. Which, yeah, okay, that's that's fine because uh, I it would they made a big deal about it in October, a, a whole two months before uh, they even posted they even put this article out because uh, I, I was just scrolling through twitter one day and george knapp had posted a link to it so um yeah that's uh it, it really makes you wonder and <laughs> but uh, see that's like that's that's one of the things that i find so curious and and again kind of frustrating that other people don't find it so curious is like so back in the late 80s mid 80s to late 80s when we were kind of at that time going through what's now known as like the Benowitz affair. Mm -hmm. Um, like you had this group of people who worked for the government, people like Hal Putoff and Kit Green, um, and John Alexander who were feeding disinformation to a UFO researcher and basically driving him insane. And, you know, these people are back, but this time they're being honest about it. Like, I just don't get, how we're continuing to trust people who have repeatedly shown us that they are not trustworthy. I mean, even George Knapp, George Knapp admits to like putting out disinformation back in the eighties. Same thing with Linda Moulton Howell. Like these are the same. And now, now we're going to trust them again because they've learned their lesson from the last time. And yet they're dealing with the same people they were dealing with the last time. But we're supposed to trust those people because they've learned their lesson. Like I learned my lesson the first time. Like if you're going to lie to me, I'm not going to outright trust what you say on its, you know, on, 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 on the face of your comments. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. And, um, why do you think that the government's, uh, uh, the government's idea of how we perceive this phenomena, why do you think it's so important? And why do you think it needs to be manipulated it. that way? <laughs> you know, I, I really don't know if it's meant to make our community look crazy, uh, just to keep us not looking in the right direction. I mean, you know, when a magician says nothing up my sleeve, like there's a, something up his sleeve. That's why he said there's nothing up his sleeve. Um, so I, I think there, the government has always been a master of manipulation of how things are treated. And so if they're testing high technology, if they're testing new technology and they don't want people to know about it, you can wrap it up in this kind of 
conspiratorialists are crazy, ufologists are crazy, don't believe anything they say, and give some of them information that's true and some of them that's information that's false, let them interfight between each other, and then they make them everybody look crazy. I mean, look at look at right now. I mean, you're talking we're talking about the New York Times story, which came out in December and had this huge hit and was on all the news stations, and now in the middle of February is basically gone. Like no one even talks about it anymore. Mm-hmm. It, it burned itself out that fast. And now if someone sees something, they'll point to that story in December and say, oh, well, there was government stuff going on or something. I remember reading something about that. And then it just falls by the wayside again. So this is just a, a way that wraps us up arguing with each other. Um, and then the larger community just kind of has continues to see us as these kind of conspiratorialist tinfoiled hat uh, nutballs. And so they just don't pay us any regard whatsoever. But there will be two or three people who become the mouthpiece that are going to end up representing us. And unfortunately, in our community, like we don't have even a choice to say, I don't want to be represented by that person. Whoever the media is going to select as the voice for the UFO community is going to be the one. And you're going to have to deal with that. And that's really frustrating, too. Yeah, especially when the voices right now are Luis Elizondo, and I don't know enough about the man to actually, you know, fully understand how much I can trust him. He's he was in intelligence, and you know, people. He was in. He was an intelligence agent who was fired for illegally wiretapping and surveilling American citizens. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so he's definitely not someone you can easily trust or trust at all um i can't trust fully tom DeLong because he's putting hoaxed ufo photos out on his twitter account and instagram he's tweeting about his uh parents um security clearances for whatever stupid reason and he's making a fool of himself and yeah i can't believe that he posts some of the photos that he posts right and wants to be taken seriously yeah. Like posting photographs that are 10, 15 years old, known hoaxes. And then he does that thing where he deletes them like within a day. Like <laughs> that's just super sketchy too. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, absolutely. Um, And that's, that furthers this, uh, like when people throw around, like people that don't research this stuff and they throw around the word disclosure, the first thing my, I do is I roll my eyes and, <laughs> and I, um, and I just let that buzzword just go in and out of my ears and I just, it gets me all depressed and, and crap like that. <laughs> it does the same to me. <laughs> so uh, moving from something that's less depressing than the government holding on to its UFO secrets. Well, um, before we do, yeah. if you if you haven't talked about it, if your listeners get a chance, like they should Google the aviary and the Paul Benowitz affair. Yeah. Like that's very important. You know, the aviary were, was Hal put off and, and Kit Green and, and John Alexander back in the 80s. They were the group of people who were the inside government intelligence insiders who were going to disclose all the information about UFOs and ended up doing nothing but creating a giant mess for the UFO community. And now they're back because they're all members of To the Stars with Tom DeLong. So they should look up the Paul Benowitz affair and look up the aviary and read as much as they can about how the UFO community was fooled back in the eighties and nineties. Mm-hmm. And the, 
Yeah, and uh, the the key uh, the key player in this who has started to reemerge, well, emerge on social media is Richard Doty. He's, oh, he's back again for sure. Yeah, um, and you know, it really makes you wonder why. It's it freaks me out when I go to uh, uh, Ryan Sprague's Facebook group and, and he's Doty's liking, commenting. Yeah, and he's liking my posts. I'm like. <laughs> I don't trust you. You're nobody I trust. Right? Especially you and your 70s looking uh, Facebook profile picture. <laughs> like, that's that that looks like a man at a time who's ready to feed me disinformation. No thank you, sir. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but he's honest now. He's honest about it. He's honest now. We're, we're supposed to trust him now. Yeah, the the man who's too paranoid to give interviews over Skype because, you know, they're yeah. they're listening in. Of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, back in January, I had, uh, I had released a mini episode about the Eagle River incident, and, uh, I think it was like a couple, maybe an hour or two after that, you tweeted me a link to an album that you had made <laughs> called Simonton Nobby Tires on Wet Pavement. What inspired you to, to put together that album? So, I've always... Loved the most strange parts of UFOlogy. So I, I loved when I found out, you know, back in the 80s or probably early 90s, the story of Joe Simonton getting pancakes from aliens. I was like, I'm 100% into this story. I love it. Um, but in the, I've always been a musician. I've been a, I've been in bands for most of my life. But when I research, I need noise in the background, and I live alone. It's somewhat quiet in my house. I usually have music playing, but when I research, I need something kind of droning in the background. So I started. I actually made two albums. One is called Serios, which is based on this guy who used to do photography. Uh, oh he, yeah, I yeah. remember. <laughs> so that was the first one I did, and it's kind of these ambient noise record albums, but they're based around uh, the events of a person. So like. While I'm researching Ted Sirius, uh, I would, you know, find myself reading something in a line that would say uh, the machinery in his house. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, well, let's make this thing that sounds like a machine. And then when I'm researching, like it just feeds back, you know, it's like a feedback loop in my head. So uh, Simonton had always been on my list to do something with and I didn't know what it was. And there's so many weird little quotes and, and just weird aspects to that story i was like i need to make a simonton record so that's where knobby tires on wet pavement come comes in just this super bizarre story that i've always loved i have a, a kid's book coming out this year uh the illustrations are being done right now which is called pancakes from outer space a kind of true story maybe um <laughs> But what's interesting about my kids' book is it's an early reader. It's for you know kids maybe in fourth or fifth grade, which I think that they're ready for a weird UFO story. But what's cool about it is, you know, the first thirty pages are this kid books with illustrations, and then at the end, I've reprinted all of the blue book documents on the Simonton case, so they get to see actual government documents in there, uh, and then I reprint the newspaper reports. And there's uh, a page that tells kids how to file Freedom of Information Act requests and how to look up the newspapers at the National Archives and the Library of Congress. And then the final page is a recipe on how they can make pancakes from outer space. This is going to be the book of the year. It has to be. (laughs) (laughs) I've always loved the Joe story. And, you know, it's um, I I don't know. 
so at my lectures, I sometimes I try and tell people to diversify their weirdness, right? So mm-hmm. uh, the UFO community always fights with the ghost community. The ghost community fights with the cryptozoological community. The cryptozoological community fights with the ghost and the UFO community. And I've always been one of those people that, like, I want one combined community of weirdness. And so at my lectures, when I tell the Joe Simonton stories, I like to point out that, you know, they telepathically talked to him, these three men with these weird high-collared little black hats, Uh, They telepathically talk to Joe Simonton. They give him a big silver jug and tell him to fill it with water. He gives them this fresh, pure water out of his well. They give him some pancakes and they fly away. Um, And then the pancake, you know, the chemical analysis on the pancakes are done. And the only thing that's strange about them is that they have zero sodium content. Mm -hmm. And so when I tell that story in my lectures, I tell it, yes, as a UFO story. But then I also you know, return to it and say, this also follows the pattern from the 15th century of people dealing with the fairy folk. The fairy folk used to wear these kind of high collared shirts and they're known to wear little hats. Uh, They leave fairy rings everywhere they go. Like Joe Simonton had a huge scorch mark in front of his house. Uh, Fairies can only drink the purest river water from the finest silver vessels. That's a 15th century fairy thing. Uh, And they can be destroyed by throwing salt on them. And so his UFO story has correlations to the mythology of the fairy folk. And so you you go from one aspect of UFOlogy into this other aspect of fairies and elves, which is why I think the communities should be combined. Because you do see that overlapped very often in a lot of cases. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, like with... uh... Seth Breedlove's last documentary, uh, Invasion on Chestnut Ridge, they talk about um, essentially Bigfoot emerging out of UFOs or, you know, from light sources or something like that. So there are definite cross sections where they where they do overlap. And I I, it is important to, you know, acknowledge that and, and come together as a unit to study it. Yeah. Uh, you know, one of the things I talked to. Uh, my friends Greg and Dana Newkirk, like Greg is under the belief that Bigfoot is like more like a ghost, uh, which is why you can't ever catch him. Uh, but, you know, my interest in that kind of weird middle ground between UFOs and Bigfoot is that when you read Bigfoot reports, they focus on the Bigfoot sighting. And when you talk to the witnesses to Bigfoot events and Bigfoot sightings, uh, if you really dig into their their narrative and their story – then moments before or moments after, which they never usually talk about because it's not, they don't think it's involved with the Bigfoot sighting, is they either experience a bright flash of light, they hear a loud pop in their head, or there's a, a green burst in the sky. Uh, but because people don't think that has anything to do with seeing a giant hominid run through the woods, it's written off, where... If you really document how many times that happens around a Bigfoot sighting, you might be experiencing something that's popping into this reality from somewhere else or being teleported in from somewhere else. Mm. Um, Do you think there's any aspect like that in the UFO phenomenon that's being overlooked, aside from the fact that uh, nobody wants to pay attention to them? (laughs) Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that uh, very early on probably in the late 80s and early 90s when I would go and 
hang out at UFO conventions and conferences, one of the things that I had talked about that I don't see discussed very much anymore is that when you do talk to uh, abductees or experiencers, there is very oftentimes a mention that someone was wearing like a historical outfit. So mm -hmm. a Civil War soldier outfit or they, a Napoleon Bonaparte type hat. Like there's this aspect that someone was wearing a weird historical costume and that doesn't get really written about at all anymore. And I don't know why, but it still occurs when I, when I really press, uh, without, you know, giving anybody information when I'm talking to an experiencer, like they'll say, oh yeah, well, you know, there was also an, and I just, you know, is, was there anything else that you saw? No, no. You know, and then you will get them to a point where they'll say, and I kind of think someone was wearing like a French military uniform or something like that. And you'll, mm -hmm. you'll, as soon as, like, as soon as they say it, they know that it sounds weird, but if you can get them to talk about the weirdest aspect of their UFO encounter or their alien encounter, there's this thing about people wearing historical outfits. And I don't know. I mean, I think that's one that's getting overlooked and it's super interesting to me. Yeah, absolutely. And another aspect that I think is also getting overlooked uh, is um, uh, when Rich Haddam, the screenwriter for The Mothman Prophecies, was mm -hmm. on Astonishing Legends. He talked about how in certain abduction cases, and like in Whitley Strieber's account, he talked about how he would interact with almost like deceased family members. Yes. And um, I think that's something that's also being overlooked too, because I just uh, interviewed Brad Abrahams, the director behind uh, the documentary Love and Saucers, uh, uh -huh. about Dave Huggins and his paintings and stuff like that. And, um, I didn't uh, I didn't know this at the time, but I ended up uh, getting the book or uh, that was released a few years ago with all his paintings in it. And there's actually a painting of uh, I think it's like a mantis like being coming through the wall, and behind him is his mother, mm -hmm. who had who had passed away. So uh, yeah, the, I I definitely think uh, that aspect and um, the what you're talking about with the really weird outfits, yeah the. Those are things that are definitely overlooked these days. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at, you know, no matter what you believe in like Betty and Barney Hill, but like, you know, even Betty talks about them wearing these weird old military uniforms. Mm -hmm. um, but you, you, you do see it in some of the older, more credible abduction cases. And, and like you're saying, this other aspect where you're interacting with deceased loved ones or deceased friends is a super fascinating aspect that people just don't want to tackle. It's really strange to think that people who are studying UFOs get to a point where they say, that's too weird for me. Mm -hmm. I've never understood that. Like you, we should be digging into the weirdest parts of all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> And, and people don't want to because they want to be seen as credible researchers, whatever that means. Um, but then you're missing the wider, weirder world that they exist within. Yeah, and um, if I can uh, make an example of this, um, when I went on um, Ryan Sprague's podcast, uh, we were doing an episode about Men in Black encounters. Mm -hmm. And one of the most notorious Men in Black encounters was uh, Dr. Herbert Hopkins, who had an encounter with something that would 
seem like it was robotic almost. It, mm-hmm. it wasn't fully human. But if you dive into the story of what he was investigating, it is weirder than <laughs> than his encounter because it, it's the story of David Stevens. And basically, yeah. he gets up one night, he goes for a drive with his buddy, uh, Glenn Gray, and their vehicles being controlled. <laughs> yeah. They don't they don't even they don't even notice the them going o- over the road and David Stevens ends up getting abducted by these weird-looking aliens with mushroom-shaped heads. They have uh weird-looking clothes on, but they also have shoes, which is also interesting. Paper yeah. and shoes. And he recounts this and then you get to the Herbert Hopkins Men in Black encounter and then his son has an encounter with two people claiming to be i don't remember uh, if they were part of like pretending to be part of a ufo organization but they they almost didn't understand how to be human and right then, <laughs> and then <laughs> i think it's the because it was a couple the man asks uh his uh his daughter-in-law for nude photos and it's like what is going on here yeah yeah <laughs> i mean so i had a case where uh some gentleman had gone and stayed in the the upper peninsula of Michigan and they thought that they saw Bigfoot. And so I went up back with them because a lot of them were experiencing some strange illnesses and they wanted to go back there because they thought it was related to Bigfoot and they had thought that they were being watched out in the woods. So uh, out of the six, I think three of them went back with me. We found their original campsite. Um, we started wandering through this national park up in the UP and then all of a sudden we found like this little old cabin back in the woods and uh, I got up the nerve to knock on the door. I could tell someone was in it because there was smoke coming out of the wood stove chimney in the, in the back of the house. And this old man comes out and I asked him, yeah, have you ever seen any Bigfoot around here? And he looked off into the woods in a different direction. He got really weird. Uh, and I, I just thought it was because I was asking him about Bigfoot and he said, no, no Bigfoot. And then like he he had locked eyes in this one direction of the forest and he slammed the door and I told the guys I was with, well, I guess we're going in that direction. And so we wander through the forest, maybe another mile, mile and a half. And in the middle of this forest is this tiny, maybe nine by nine uh, foot cinder block building, probably about 10 feet tall with a huge radar dish on top of it. It's surrounded by razor wire with department of defense signs all over it. And I was like, what is happening out in this woods? Like, is this a UFO sighting? Is this a Bigfoot sighting? Is the government doing something out here? So I took some pictures of it, and then we had to leave. We, we went back home about a month, no, about, I think it was a few months later. I think it was about six months later. I went back. Uh, I found the cabin, and then I found a completely raised site where that cinder block building had been, it had been torn down, the fence had been taken down, and someone had planted trees there, and it was completely gone. I was like, what the hell just happened here? Whoa. That is crazy. That's amazing, though. It's like, what the hell? Yeah, what's going on? And I, like I said, like we have to be willing to embrace the strangest parts of all of this stuff, because whether or not Obviously, some people are making stuff up and some people are fabricating events. That's fine. That's usually very easily called out. I mean, you can really usually find when someone is making something up. But what's interesting to me is people who seem to have valid experiences. This is, you know, you're talking about something that's not researched that often. People who seem to have valid experiences, but then they go off the rails. And it's almost as if 
they are in contact with some type of highly intelligent off-world or even on-world people that are giving feeding them information. And then at some point, they become too much of a personality. So whoever's giving them the information starts feeding them insane information so that they end up looking insane. So all of their original information is, is you know, found to be invalid, even if it was valid in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just so many things about all of this that aren't being looked at or being ignored. And, and, and I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm, I'm sure it scares people to, you know, straight, you know, it's like, I, I know if I was in that situation, I would probably, uh, just shut up and keep to myself. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, if you look at like in Michigan in 66, when we had the huge UFO sighting here, Frank Manor, the first guy who actually kind of reported it and turned it into such a big thing. I mean, if you watch interviews with him, you know, three weeks later, He's just like Joe Simonton, where he's like, I would never mention this to anyone. If I ever saw anything ever again, I'll never talk about it. Yeah, and that's uh, the the Dexter Hillsdale sightings. Yeah, the, those are. I I I feel bad for everybody involved, uh, uh, especially uh, Frank Manor. He, it, it seemed like he never was able to get his story straight. He reported it for at least four different ways to four different newspaper outlets. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that, you know, the the government investigation was being railroaded in the first place because they sent J. Allen Hynek out there. They didn't, <laughs> right. give, they didn't give him enough time. They planted information to make it seem like, okay, we're going to steer him in the, in this direction. And then he uh, he gets a phone call supposedly from the sheriff saying, no, this is swamp gas. This is what we're going with. Yep. To the point where we don't even fully know what happened. Uh, yeah, I mean, something happened. But again, it's so manipulated at so many different levels, whether it's local police working with the government, the gov- a larger government group. But I mean, even to the point of like, how much was Gerald Ford manipulated into going onto the floor of the house and demanding an investigation? Like what information was he being given? Cause that's going to be at a different level than what they're trying to do at a local level to someone le- or a local ish level, like what they're doing to Hynek. So it's like, there's so many different narratives. How do you find the one that's true? Yeah, exactly. And then, uh, yeah, from that you get the the O'Brien panel, which automatically leads to the Condit Committee, and then ultimately UFOs are nothing worth (laughs) investigating. (laughs) Right, all of a sudden they're not real. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Um, So you you lecture on a wide variety of topics. Do you have a particular favorite that you really enjoy lecturing on? Uh, No, I I really do enjoy kind of melding all of the worlds together. So when I do lectures, I, I tell people, you know, no matter what the name of this lecture was that you thought that you were coming to, we're going to go all over the place and we're going to talk about everything from UFOs to consciousness to ghosts to, uh, you know, advanced technology to time travelers. Like, it's just going to be how my mind works because I don't presuppose to think that I know stuff that people don't know, but I do want to challenge certain people's ideas. So at the beginning of my lectures, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I start my lectures and have for years is I ask the crowd of people, you know, how many people here believe in ghosts, raise your hands. And then how many people here believe in UFOs, raise your hands. How many people here believe in Bigfoot, raise your hands. And the way that that normally breaks down is most people believe in ghosts. And then there's a large percentage that believe in UFOs. And then when I ask about Bigfoot, a few people raise their hands and the most of the crowd laughs at Bigfoot. And then 
right after I ask the group that, I explain, okay, so the majority of you believe that there is a persistence in consciousness and personality that exists in some unexperiential, uh, unquantified, unknown realm of existence. Most of you believe that. Most of you believe that consciousness exists beyond the biology of humanity. Uh, a second large portion of you believe that in the inky blackness of space, technology has been derived from another race of creatures which has evolved, transversed the cosmos, and found us and is now interacting with us. And the majority of you have laughed and do not believe that there's a big animal on this planet that we haven't discovered. The most real of the three is the one that's laughed at the most. Mm -hmm. The one that's most possible, that there might be an animal on this planet we haven't discovered, is the one that people think is the most ridiculous. Yeah, which is, which is so strange, and uh, everybody, and there's a there's a thousand different theories. Like uh, I I have my own theory. There's a uh, there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Dave Gibson. He lives he lives downstate from where I am. I'm I'm in the Adirondack Park up uh-huh. way up north in New York, and he he was building a cabin in this area, and. He was uh, staying not far away from it, but uh, where he was staying, he believed like Bigfoot. It was like a walkthrough area for Bigfoot mm-hmm. because he every morning he would uh, eventually like they would leave handprints on his vehicle. They he'd find footprints. Uh, his dogs would freak out. Uh, I don't know if he ever really saw them, but you know they were always around and. <laughs> One of the most fascinating aspects of it is uh, at a certain point there was a stump on his property. And what they would do is um, they would leave something for the Bigfoot and the Bigfoot would leave something for them. They would just trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day they traded something and they got back what looked like a letter made out of branches. And he posited that it was a Mandarin word. Hmm. Which to me is is like one of the most it's one of the most fascinating things I've ever heard, um, regardless of whether it's true or not. But like, <laughs> right? <laughs> what Bigfoot speaks Mandarin? That's that's kind of interesting. <laughs> it's interesting, yeah, for sure. Um, the so, weirder um, the better. Yeah, right. <laughs> so um, uh, to close us out, uh, you uh, recently gave a state of the unusual address on the same night, the state of the union address was happening. Um, I will tell you that it was way better than the state of the union address. That's for sure. Um, Thanks. Shorter for sure. <laughs> yeah. I didn't have to, I didn't have to stop for applause. That's why. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't have to cast aspersions on people that didn't applause. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, uh, so it's, you know, it's a fun, and serious statement at the same time about all of us in this community. What do you hope people take away most from it? Uh, I really, you know, the, the one serious part in it uh, is, um, at least the one that I want people to kind of hold fast with, is there's a part in that state of the unusual that says no one, no one is better equipped than our community to deal with fake news. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Since time immemorial, we are the ones that understand that people do make up information, that people do falsify stories, and to really use our skills as even if just the generally interested, you know, some of us are researchers and historians and and archivists, and that's fine. Um, 
but even the generally interested in our community know when to call people on their bullshit. It's, mm -hmm. it's as simple as that. And again, we've been the target of it for as long as we've been around. And so we know when someone is handing us a false story and I feel it's our job. I feel it's, if we have one duty to try and clear up any of these mysteries, it's to say that's fake. That's just not real. Um, or there's a good chance that it's fake or there's a, I mean, I don't deal in absolutes even with false stories. I think some of the best false stories can always contain an element of truth, but that's, that's our, our one job is to really kind of sweep out the cobwebs and say, this isn't real, or this has a, a really good underlying narrative, but this other part of it isn't true. Um, so just do research and don't accept people on their word. I've always had a, a dif difficulty with that when someone says, oh, we earlier we we're talking about disclosure. When someone wants to hand you all of the information, when they want to give you all the keys to the kingdom, you should be very aware of that situation because I don't think anyone has the keys to the kingdom. Uh, it's spread throughout our culture, our history, our belief systems, and it's up to us to work together to piece together what the keys actually are. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and I definitely hope it's, uh, uh, cause I'm going to post a link to it in the show notes. I, I encourage all to go check it out because, uh, it's definitely, uh, it's great. You'll get a good laugh out of it. And there's also just, uh, great things to take away from it. Uh, thank you for coming on the pod today. I, I greatly appreciate it. Um, uh, what kind of upcoming events do you have and, uh, where can people find you, uh, and find out about your work? So I've tried to make it as easy as possible. Everything is John, J-O-H-N-E-L, my middle initials, Tenny, T-E-N-N-E-Y. That's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, even if you, they can't remember weirdlectures.com, I think I still own John E-L-Tenny.com, which redirects to weirdlectures.com. But if they go to weirdlectures.com, that's where they can find all my upcoming events or, or follow me on Twitter at John E-L-Tenny. I always tell people the best way to do it is just type Tenny, T-E-N-N-E-Y, weirdo into Google and, <laughs> and follow that wherever it leads. And I'm sure it leads to some great places, man. <laughs> uh, thank you again. Rob, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, absolutely. A big thanks to John E.L. Tenny for joining me on this week's episode. If you want to check out his work, go to weirdlectures.com. Next week, I'll be having a conversation with Toby from Secret Transmission about the Battle of L.A., so tune in for that episode. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to email the show with suggestions for future episodes or for comments, email us at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. We also have a Facebook group, In Gray We Trust, a group for those who look up into Our Strange Skies. Come join the conversation over there. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in Our Strange Skies. In Gray We Trust. Hey everyone, this is Sarah from Good Nightmare Podcast. 
a podcast where I like to talk about all things strange and unusual, whether it's mysteries, historical crimes, or fairy tale origins. I hope you'll come along for the ride and join me as we delve into some spooky tales. Happy listening! Are you fascinated by mysterious legends, the paranormal, or UFOs? Do stories of murder, missing persons, and con men send you down internet rabbit holes? Did you grow up watching the TV show Unsolved Mysteries? Does Robert Stack's voice haunt your nightmares? Then our podcast is for you. I'm Liz. And I'm Samantha. Join us every Wednesday as we discuss the original Robert Stack episodes of Unsolved Mysteries. Follow along with us on Amazon Prime or just tune in for our weekly podcast. We are on iTunes, Google Play, and social media at Perhaps it's you. Duvid Media.